The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesian Church, chapter 6. This uh, chapter is quite familiar to us after eight weeks of study. And though there are only a few short verses that address our subject, we find these verses are packed with information that we desperately need. Today is the 18th of October. We are now 15 weeks since our last church service. And none of us could have imagined that we would be this long out of church and that the concern would be a virus that's the cause of keeping us apart. And instead of helping each other and being in the fellowship of the church, we are separated so as not to harm ourselves and the public. And I don't think that any of us would have dreamed that church could be the cause of public harm rather than supreme public good. And when churches choose to meet against government orders, God's people are viewed as radical, self-centered subversives. But that shouldn't surprise us because the Bible prophesied that wicked people would call evil good and good evil. Last month I was reading some articles about the attacks of 9-11 on 2001, and it's one of the reasons I mentioned this in the last message. But less than 20 years ago, the hottest items in stores were t-shirts and sweaters with logos of the New York City Police Department and the fire departments. That would be NYPD and FDNY across the, the front of the shirts. And these shirts sold out quickly because of the overwhelming support for first responders to the 9-11 attacks. These shirts were in short supply. They were more popular than any of the sports teams that usually rank best in sales. But now here we are 20 years later and sports teams are protesters against the police and they uniformly sell a false narrative that the police are the real killers. And so now police are the enemy and assailants hunt them down and kill them. This is a world gone mad, but it's also prophesied in the Bible. Now, it's expected that a world that's ruled by the powers of darkness will not improve. And it's no wonder that the encouragement of scriptures is for Christians to look for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. But meanwhile, we're waiting on that and we must live here. We must cope with evil and live with all of its consequences every day. And yet at the same time, we're not to be depressed or discouraged or despondent. And we are to remember that this is a temporary life that we live and endure that's filled with promises of hope. And I admit, in unprecedented days like these, that may seem too much a challenge. And this is when we need to go back to the Word of God and, and, and take this volume that is the compilation of, of several books and letters, a volume not very large in size, but as I've said, densely packed with vital information. This is the survival guide for Christians fighting spiritual battles and trying to maintain and advance faith in the kingdom of God. Well, if you have your Bibles open, let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. Our text verses are verses 10 through 13. 
But I would like to read a little bit further so you can see where we are headed in the next several weeks of study. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Last week the message ended with these words from Charles Wesley's hymn, Soldiers of Christ Arise. Wesley used this passage in Ephesians as the inspiration for the hymn. And in one verse he wrote, Leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. Now the subject of the message last week was preparations for Christian warfare. Before the Christian is ready to face the powers of darkness, he must fortify himself with the virtues, with the graces of God. And this is the panoply, or, or the Greek tin panoplyon, which means the whole armor of God. If we are to be successful in Christian warfare, we must wear the entire armor, the panoply. We are to cover every area, cover every weakness of the soul. Or as Wesley said, Fortify the whole. And this is because Satan's attacks come from every angle. Satan looks for the vulnerable spots. He looks for the missing armor where a fiery dart may penetrate and strike your weakness and cause you to fall. Now, as I was studying and preparing this message, I was hit with one of these unexpected attacks. As I've said in many of my updates and messages, my chief concern in these days when we can't meet is how do we hold the church together? Every person experiences his own attacks. We can't be together and help each other through our difficulties. We may not spot when a member is wounded and is in trouble. And I'm distressed when members become more concerned about secular events and about political upheaval and their persuasions. And these concerns become more burdensome to them than the weight of the gospel and standing with the church to make sure the gospel is preached. They desert the church because of political persuasions. And I notice that they preface their remarks with, I think, I feel, it's my opinion. And not once do they fall back on the word of God to ground and correct these opinions. Well, the whole armor must be taken because Satan's attacks come from every angle. They're often unexpected. Satan looks for the weakness of the soul, a place where he can work and cause you to fall. And so the Christian must cover himself with all the virtues, all the graces supplied by God because those attacks will come and we should expect them to come. 
Well, in our message today, we we're still discussing preparations for warfare, but in another sense that before we put on the armor, we must be aware of our defensive posture. Now, next week, we'll start a discussion of each piece of armor that must be put on. But this week, I'd like to discuss how the Christian soldier mentally approaches warfare, things that he must be ready for. Now, if you look at the fifth chapter, back in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, we discover our stance. This is verses 15 and 16. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. These verses tell us to walk circumspectly. That means to walk diligently, to walk carefully. It conveys the idea of being precise. And I believe that we could compare it to a soldier who walks lightly and precisely, being very careful about where each, feet, each foot is placed. One of our former members was deployed in Iraq during the Gulf War, and it was his job to detect IEDs, improvised explosive devices. And these homemade devices were planted along the dirt roadways, and as you know, they were responsible for many deaths and dismemberments of American soldiers. And so our troops had to be careful of these devices, and so they would diligently search them out. They would walk very precisely, being careful with each step. Likewise, in towns and villages, they had to be aware of snipers and windows out of view and deadly with their aim. And they had to watch each person that approached them because hidden beneath their clothes, even beneath the clothes of a child, could be a suicide vest. And this is what Paul means when he says to walk circumspectly. A fool isn't careful. A fool isn't wise. He's unaware of danger. Now, he may be one that looks for a direct attack, one that he can see. But all too often, the direction of the attack is it isn't obvious. And this is what I mean that I must be cautious about. I don't expect an attack from membership. And always those attacks are the ones that hurt the most. But let me speak to you about some of Satan's attacks and the reason our defensive posture must be to walk circumspectly. The first we would notice is the attack against God's credibility. Our deepest seated weakness is our tendency to distrust God. And this is as old as the Garden of Eden because it was in the Garden that Satan tempted Adam and Eve not to trust God and his motives. When Satan came to Eve and tempted her to eat of the forbidden fruit, his method was to sow seeds of doubt in her mind about God's motive. Why would God prohibit you from eating of this one tree of the garden? And Satan said, God knows when you eat of this tree that, that you will change and you will be just like him. You'll know everything that God knows. And God doesn't want you as his rival. Now, if I could just put that into a modern context, God does not want you to be all you can be, Eve. If you'll just eat of the fruit of the tree, you don't need to listen to God. He can't tell you what to do. And so Satan wants you to distrust God because he knows that when our faith is strong and we trust the Lord, that is when we have the power to resist his temptations. The Bible says if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And what does that mean to draw near to God? Well, of course, it means draw near him with faith. If we trust God, Satan can't win. The strength 
of the Christian is his faith. And when faith is weak, the whole man is weak. And thus he's vulnerable to temptation and sin. Now in Hebrews, the writer describes the power of faith. Uh, Chapter 11 is a magnificent tribute to examples of faith and the fruits of it. There are examples of of saints who whose faith didn't fail, and by faith they achieved God's promises. The author concludes that chapter by saying, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Satan knows he can't defeat faith. And he knows that if he can destroy our trust in God, then we have no hope to win against him. So our strongest defense is faith in God. As that song says, have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches or his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Now, if Satan can convince people that God is a liar... If he convinces them that they can't trust him, then there is no salvation. And this is the reason that Satan perverts the gospel. This is the reason he wants God out of classrooms and courtrooms. This is the reason that church and state separation is wrongly interpreted as God and state separation. If a person isn't guided by faith, then what is his moral compass? Now, faith is important, and this is the reason that we need to know what guides our leaders. And friends, if they're not guided by God, there is only one other guide. And if we say, oh, well, they're guided by self, that's no different than saying they are guided by Satan. So I'm much saddened, and I am fearful for church members who value their opinions above the Word of God. Because when we turn away from God and turn to self, it is the same as turning to Satan. Satan tries to destroy God's credibility. Yea, hath God said? Did God really say that? And we hear it, and we reach the same conclusion as Eve centuries ago. Well, it really doesn't matter what God says. I have an opinion. No, it's Satan's attack against God's truthfulness, and so we must walk diligently in the truth of God's word. Well, next, there is the attack, the attack against our calling What is a Christian called to do? We could explore many things under this heading. Uh, We can talk about the call to preach the gospel. We've all been called to share our faith with others, and Satan discourages us from doing it. We're called to uphold standards of truth, and Satan attacks that. He always wants to water down the word of God. But what I'm more concerned about as we look at this today is Satan's attacks against our separation, that we are called to be separate from the world. Paul wrote, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Satan knows that if he can destroy our separation, that he will destroy our fellowship with God. And when that fellowship is gone, the power with God is gone. Did you know that the separation of God's people is the first principle that he taught about them in the Old Testament scriptures? In Genesis chapter 3, God drew a line separating the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That line of separation is the line between the devil's people and God's 
people. There was a line of separation drawn between Cain and Abel. John wrote, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. That is a line of separation. God called Abraham. He separated from the idolatry of his family. He moved him from Ur and took him to Canaan. When God chose Jacob, he separated him from Esau. And God chose Israel to be his nation. He established them with his law. And what was the chief component of the law? Separation. This is the basis of the moral law, of dietary laws, of the ceremonial law. All of that was to separate Israel from other nations. Israel was a different people with different laws and they served a different God. So God told Joshua, go in, possess Canaan. And he said, you must drive out all the Canaanites. I, I don't want you to live with them. I don't want them to be your friends. I don't want you to marry them. I don't want you to get involved in, with any of their false gods. God said, you are my people and I will separate you from everyone. And this is what God did first. And so what did Satan try to do first? Well, he tried to break down those walls of separation. When Israel was in the wilderness, he tempted them to intermarry with Moabites. And Israel didn't resist the temptation and they worshipped their gods. In Canaan, they started to drive out the Canaanites, but they didn't complete the job. And years later, in the period of the judges, they abandoned God and no one paid attention to God, but they did what was right in their own eyes. Without separation, they struggled to maintain true worship. And then when Solomon became king, oh, he was great in many ways, built a magnificent temple to the Lord God. But Solomon didn't stay separate from others. He married foreign lives, foreign wives, and they were the undoing of his great kingdom. And over and over throughout Israel's history, they weren't true to their calling to be a separated people. And now we come to the church age, and God tells us the same thing today. He says that we are the ecclesia, we are the called out people, we are the sanctified, and we are to be holy and to maintain separation from the world. And Satan knows that breaking down that separation is the starting place of successful attacks. When we're saved, the devil's battle for the eternal soul is lost. So he starts a new battle. It's a battle for the affections. He wants you to mix with the world. He tempts young people to look like the world and talk like the world and make worldly friends and go to worldly places. And when he does, he destroys testimonies and the influence of Christians. Now, Satan knows when he destroys separation that he stops the gospel dead in its tracks. Christians with a mind of the world don't work for God. They don't fulfill the commission. They don't build strong families, and thus they don't build strong churches. Now, you think for just a moment about the Black Lives Matter movement. Just one small part of their manifesto is their commitment to destroy the nuclear family. But the family is the basis of society. The church is built out of families. Isn't this anything other than an obvious satanic attack? It's a backdoor approach to destroy the church. And so these attacks come from everywhere. We must separate from the world because we're not part of this world. We have nothing in common with this world except that we live in the same space. 
But we're never to be on the same wavelength with them. We are to put on the armor and not let Satan break down the resistance by compromising our separation. So be true to that calling. Put on the armor so that you resist peer pressure. Put on the armor so that you remain holy and sanctified and set apart to God. In Hebrews 7, we're notified that this is a separating characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ. There it says, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Now, he is separate from sinners in that he can't sin. He's at the right hand of God, so he's separated. He has the protection of heaven. He's away from them. But mostly important for this discussion, he lived among sinners and yet he did not partake of their sins. And this is what God calls us to do. We must be like Christ. We must be vessels that are separated for the master's use. Now, thirdly, there's the attack of confusion. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed confusion as one of the wiles of the devil. And we examined several areas of confusion, such as temptation and discouragement and worry. But I'd like to zero in for a few minutes on a different type of confusion And this is doctrinal confusion. Every doctrine in God's word is fair game for the devil to distort. It starts with regeneration. That's the doctrine of the new birth. And that's where every Christian starts his new life. Every Christian is affected by this doctrine of regeneration, even if you don't fully understand all the doctrinal implications of it. You can't be a Christian without being regenerated, without being born again. And so, of course, Satan starts there, and this is where this is where the Christian life begins. And so he distorts that, and he distorts the doctrine of salvation. How is a person born again? How can we be right with God? And Satan twisted that. He did it in the Garden of Eden, and he twisted it by Adam and Eve sowing fig leaves together. Fig leaves were an attempt to cover up sin by self-righteousness. Adam's nakedness was symbolic of the lack of righteousness. And so Adam tried to cover nakedness by his own efforts. And that is the basis of all false religions. Satan works with a very simple concept. There is something that you can do to make yourself right with God. He started the lie of baptismal regeneration. I say, what is that? What's baptismal regeneration? Well, I will say that it's one of the oldest perversions of the gospel. It's the doctrine that says that water, literal water, can wash away your sins. If you will submit to baptism, then your sins will be washed away. Some teach that the blood of Christ is contacted in the water. So you can be saved if you will be baptized. Now, baptismal regeneration is probably... The most successful of all of Satan's attacks against the gospel, it's the one that's, that's been longest in continual use in Christianity, going all the way back nearly to the time of the apostles. There are other variations of distorted regeneration. Satan started the lie of decisional regeneration. And this means that faith is the cause of regeneration instead of the effect of it. And let me explain further because there are many Baptists and others Uh, that make this the most popular doctrine of salvation. 
It's the radical difference between God working alone in regeneration to man helping God save him. It's the difference between a God-centered salvation and man-centered salvation. But those things I've mentioned, those are just the tip of the iceberg. There's the charismatic movement. There's the second work of grace doctrine. There's speaking in tongues and faith healing and word of faith with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There are distortions about the church. Is the church local visible or universal visible or universal invisible? There's the question of the mode of baptism. Is it sprinkling? Is it effusion? Is it immersion? There are millennial positions, pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, which is it? There's heaven and hell, purgatory, prayers to the dead, prayers to saints, mariolatry, the mass, and on and on it goes. And then there's a Bible controversy. Which Bible should we use? Is any of them Satan's attempt to destroy the Word of God? And if not those, then there's always the doctrine of the month club, where there's something new and exciting every month. And we think, yeah, that's new, that's exciting, but history shows that every heresy's been here before. They come and they go. Satan revives them and he never stops. He confuses with doctrine. And so what do we have? Well, we have exactly what Paul warned about. He said, watch out for this, because if you don't, you will be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That's Ephesians 4.14. Isn't that true? Christians don't put on the armor. They're, they're sucked in by false doctrine because they never mount a defense against it. So we've got the hyper-fundamentalists on one side who never saw a rule they didn't like. And then you have the seeker-sensitive crowd on the other side who never saw a worldly practice that they couldn't incorporate and embrace into the church. So today you have preacher groupies they don't have enough spiritual sense to, to open a Bible for themselves and study the Word, and so they blindly follow false shepherds into a wilderness of confusion. And you know what? You can follow the trail. You can find out where they went because they leave pieces of this armor everywhere. Faith is abandoned over here. The gospel is over there. The shield of faith over here. The sword is laying somewhere off by itself, tossed aside They shed their armor, scattered everywhere like breadcrumbs to follow. And so you know where they went. They followed their blessed God preacher right into hell. Now the devil loves to confuse with doctrine. And some are so confused, they say doctrine doesn't matter at all. They're so blind. Right doctrine, wrong doctrine, what does it matter? And that's what happens when you don't put on the whole armor of God. Number four is the attack of division. Where does Satan attack with division? Well, he attacks inside the church. Some people think that Satan hates the church so much that he would never step inside the door. Well, Satan does do much of his work outside the church. He assails the gates. But he would much rather go to church than to be on the outside looking in. Satan is more anxious to go to church than most Christians And so when you get ready to go to church, he's the first one in the car. Have you experienced this? Can you raise your hand and say that you've never been in a fight in the car on the way to church? Now, when we moved to this area, we lived on the mountain in Angwin above Napa Valley. 
And to get to church, we drove the winding road down the mountain through Calistoga onto Petrified Forest Road. Then we turned on onto Mark West Springs Road. And it was just so much fun listening to our kids on the way to Sunday school. They were all sick, car sick, by the time that we got here. And so Satan starts at the moment that alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning. He gets you upset before you ever get to the church door. I like to get here early. My wife has no sense of time. And then you get into church and behold, there's somebody sitting in your seat. And a smile is turned upside down. And that goes both ways. Let me tell you about a pastor's challenge. I remember a visitor that came to church and sat in a member's seat. And the church member told them to move. Now, if that, if that church member doesn't tell them to move, then they pout all the way through the service. And they throw mental darts. They're going everywhere while I'm preaching a message. Satan loves division. Some of you may remember a church that I described in Kentucky. This is, this is a true story, not that I tell you one that's false. But it is a true story because I'm very familiar with this church. This is a church. Uh, in fact, I was just by there uh, last year about this time. Uh, this is a church that is right next door, very close to a Civil War battlefield. And it's named Battle Baptist Church. I know the church. I know some of the former pastors. The church earned its name. I mean, they earned it because they fought each other constantly. There was always a civil war going on in the church every Sunday. They took Christian warfare seriously. The local Baptist college would send ministry students there to preach to get their baptism by fire. There are two other churches that I've mentioned before. They're in Tennessee, and they're named Harmony Baptist Church and Harmony Baptist Church Number 2. These are churches that are right across the street from each other. They were once one church, but they split down the middle because they had a disagreement about which side the piano should sit on the plat uh, beside the platform. So now you have two churches. You have Harmony. You can't make this stuff up. Harmony and Harmony number two. Churches that are called Harmony. Now the devil loves that kind of stuff because he knows that when we're fighting each other, we don't have time to fight him. But when you put on the whole armor of God, when you put on the panoply, it teaches you how to keep peace. You learn to prefer others over yourself, and you learn to esteem others better than you, and to consider their feelings before you consider yours. You learn to bear your brother's burden. The armor keeps Satan from driving that wedge between you and other members over petty, non-essential issues. Now, number five is the attack of self-dependence. The devil loves to attack by making you think you don't need the armor. The armor's heavy. It's cumbersome. You are a free spirit. You can do this by yourself. You know how you spot a self-dependent Christian? This is the one who says, well, yes, I know. God says not to worry. And I trust God to take care of me. But, yes, God will take care of me. But, and as soon as you put your big but in there, your next statement is one of self-dependence. You moved from the realm of what God can do to what you can do by yourself. Worry and anxiety are the devil's attacks of self-dependence. Sunday school children learn these next verses. 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. The self-dependent person is the one who leans on his own understanding. If he prays, he prays with doubt. He may pride himself on knowledge of God's word, but he has no idea how, how to put the word to practice in his life. And did you know there's some Bereans that are like this? There are some that are cold Christians. They've been around church long enough. They've seen it all. They're not going to get too excited about anything. So I say, put on the whole armor of God. And they say, yeah, yeah, okay, I hear you. And they've grown fat and lazy. They can't fit in the armor any longer. They've got love handles and the armor doesn't fit. So the devil has them right where he wants them. They have their theology, but they don't have a clue how to use it. And one of the things I love about the Puritan authors is they had great theology. And they believe rightly that theology was supposed to produce zeal and demonstration of godliness in their lives. They didn't like cold-doored, dead orthodoxy. Most of the Puritan writers were pastors, so they didn't hole up in a university or a seminary somewhere. They learned by experience, by putting religion into practice. Number six, the attack of deception. This is about hypocrisy in the church. Don't know how many times I've heard people say, you've heard it too, I won't go to church because there are hypocrites in the church. Now, it doesn't bother them. They go to work every day with hypocrites. They go to the mall with hypocrites. But I do very well understand this sentiment. People on the outside expect church people to be sincere. They hold us to a higher standard. Now, they don't like hypocrisy, even though they know they can't live to that standard either. And the irony of it doesn't bother them because they don't pretend to live to a standard. While many Christians are pretending, Satan loves to infiltrate the church with hypocrisy. He loves unbelievers in the church, but I think he gets more done with hypocritical Christians. These are the play-acting people, those who appear to support the church and the work, but they're really working against us behind the scenes. And we know this happens, and, and I'm not really making a crying complaint about this. I've been around church for a long, long time. I know the game. I'm not discouraged by it, because I know the church always has Satan's plants in the pews. The Bible calls them the tares among the wheat. These are often people sweet to your face. They appear to be godly, and they're working for the Lord. But while I preach, they mumble under their breath, and they disagree. And so when they leave the building, they don't mind talking with other members about their disagreements. They are unhappy, but they won't discuss those disagreements to my face or take a Bible and show me where I'm wrong. See, these are the kinds of things that I go through when we're, we're in a... And that happens when we can meet in church. Imagine what goes on when I haven't seen anybody for weeks and weeks and weeks. This is a very difficult thing to do ministry in times like these. We must watch out for deceptive Christians because one of the easiest ways for Satan to do his work is to get the trusted, seasoned Christian disgruntled and talking. And this is because they often have the ear and sometimes the respect of weaker Christians. So make sure you wear the armor and put up the defenses. You can get sucked into this complaining and negativity. These are people with a bitter spirit. Now when Paul 
met those Ephesian elders at Miletus, we often refer to these scriptures. He says in Acts 20, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he says this in verse 30, Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. When someone attacks the pastor or leader of the church, please do this. Defend the pastor because he may not know who's working against him. I believe part of our defensive posture is that we defend each other. And the pastor, who is the biggest target, needs your help. Now, seventhly, is the attack of disobedience. This last attack is the one that sums up everything that goes before. On one hand, you have the Word of God, you have all the commands, you have all the admonitions of the Word. And then on the other hand, you have the opposite of all of that, the opposite of everything that God says. It's like that little angel that sits on one shoulder that whispers in your ear and says, Don't do this. And the little red devil on the other side says, do it, it won't hurt. Now that you have that mental picture, forget that because none of that's true. But we certainly do know this, that we have the inward influence of the Holy Spirit who, who encourages our faithfulness and our fidelity to God's word. And then at the same time, we have the influence of Satan outwardly that appeals to our flesh and convinces that it's more fun to be disobedient. If you go down the list of all God's commands, there is an opposite side that appeals to the flesh, and it seems better and easier to do. In an earlier message, we discussed that our sinful nature is not eradicated. We're still living in the body. It's not yet been redeemed. And so the fleshly desires are still there. Paul wrote about this struggle. He said, I want to do what's right. But then he wrote, but I see another law. This is Romans 7. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. See that controversy? goes on in every Christian. The body of death, in verse 24, is that old sinful nature that inhabits the body of flesh. And we won't be free of it until we die. And then when the body is resurrected, it will be redeemed. The sinful nature will no longer be in the body. But we are still alive, aren't we? And that nature is still here. And we can go down the list of commands. And there's always resistance to obeying God. So the devil plies his tricks. He sets his traps. He works to push us towards disobedience. And it might not be the physical things we do. Remember how Jesus taught that we can commit adultery in the mind. That goes through lust. He says we can make covet. We take God's name in vain when we think evil thoughts. And when we can meet, there's always those who resist church attendance. Everything the Word of God tells us to do there's a counterpart of resistance. And so you must wear this armor because those natural propensities are always with us. The devil exploits them to his best advantage. And if we don't take the defensive posture, if we don't work circumspectly, the IED will explode and take us down. Armor is great. It works best when we're defensively ready for every attack. 
So Christian, are you wearing your armor? You must. If you hope. If you hope to counter every wild of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for mercy and grace. Thank you for the lessons that we learn from the book of Ephesians. How practical is this advice? And though there are the good doctrines that we find in the first part of the book, things that will teach us and settle us and help us to come into the fullness of God, we learn very quickly when we get into the sixth chapter that the devil is there ready to tear us down, ready to take everything that we've learned and destroy it. And it will happen if we're not careful, if we're not diligent, if we don't walk circumspectly as you tell us to do in that fifth chapter. Lord, we just pray that you would watch over your children. Some of the things that I've uh, discussed today and mentioned may not seem like the best things to say when um, we're out of church and we have our problems and perhaps people would like to hear something far, far more encouraging than this. I don't know that there is anything more encouraging than to know that there are people out there that are struggling. There are Christians that are fighting and Christians that are trying to hold on through all of this and then to find out that God has the source, solution for every need that we have, that we don't need to fall, we don't need to falter, we never need to fail. Because you've amply provided everything that we need with this armor. It requires that we get into the word of God. That we not be passive about this and not think, well, we can just wait to read the Bible and to pray and to live like Christians. Let's just wait till church starts again. Then we'll do that. And if we wait to do that, we won't have a church when we can start again. Lord, we pray that you would... Help us not to surrender to the attacks of the devil. Bless your people. Be with them. Strengthen them. Help us every day of the week to follow you much, much closer every single day. And once again, Lord, we do pray, bring us back together soon. Bring us back together soon. Do whatever that takes within your power, and we know that you can, to have us back into fellowship with one another as your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I'd like to leave you with a final word of benediction. This is from the book of Psalms. And uh, this is Psalm chapter 31. And I want to just read to you the first five verses of this psalm. Psalm 31 and verse 1. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me. In thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock. For a house of defense. To save me. For thou art my rock. And my fortress. Therefore for thy name's sake. Lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net. That they have laid privately for me. For thou art my strength. Into thine hand. I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Remember those words. The devil lays his traps. The net is spread for us. Only God can protect us from it. Be safe. Go with God. We hope to see you soon.
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.